My name is Dan Sims and welcome to the Mold Cheesecast Live Edition, where we speak to the makers, growers, farmers and families who just happen to make the best cheese in Australia, live at our Mold Cheese Festivals across Australia. In this episode, we speak with Marla Gray from The Pines in Kiama. Sitting down and talking with Marla is just a delight and you can't help but be enamoured and motivated by her wonderful connection and enthusiasms to the farm her family calls home. Every time I chat with Marla, there is always something new and interesting to learn about the way they approach farming. With six generations of dairy farming history at the Pines, it's safe to say we've seen it all over the years. Droughts, floods, fires, and then a global pandemic Marla talks about the joys of reconnecting to the land and the significant differences just a small few changes can make. She is a legend, and if you want to learn more about what the team at The Pines are doing, Marla wrote a wonderful piece in our first edition of The Mold Digest, which is available in all of our cheese boxes and at our festivals, so make sure you grab a copy. Also, a shout out to Marla's husband, Kel. Mark our words, mate. We will see you at a festival soon. (laughs) Until then... Let's get into it. I know everyone's sort of out there, so it's getting into that sort of crazy part of a Friday night that everyone's getting a little bit excited, but we're gonna just gonna have a really good conversation about what's happening at the Pines in Kiama. Um, my name is Dan Sims from the Malt Cheese Collective. Marla Gray from the Pines, welcome. Welcome, thank you for having me, Dan. Oh, it is always a pleasure, and we're gonna have a little chat I suppose about reconnecting to the land and before we sort of like jump into that as a bit of a caveat uh, for those of you who might have had a chance to grab a copy of the Mould Digest uh, which is at the front the new publication that we just put together for this event you've written a wonderful story uh, for us and thank you so much for doing that because that was like quite short notice (laughs) that I asked you to do it but it was off the back of a conversation that we had in the Brisbane Festival yeah. and I was so uh, enamoured and uh, just inspired and excited uh, about what is happening uh, and the story uh, at the Pines and um, and what you're looking to do, sort of particularly the farm. And I suppose for a little bit of context, maybe Marla, if you could... And I don't know how you could do this in in a sort of a short period of time. Maybe tell us a little bit about the Pines. Yes. And it's got such an incredible history. Yeah. And maybe tell us, uh, I suppose, what the farm is, is, has been to maybe where it is today and then the amazing cheeses. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a great story and we are very thankful to be sixth-generation dairy farmers at the Pines. So the Pines was settled in 1854, so it was a farming family that came out... 1854. 1854, yeah. So they came out from uh, Northern Ireland, County Fermanagh. They were farmers in Ireland as well, so they brought with them a very very Northern Hemisphere style of farming. But they they had to clear that land. It was covered in red cedar and native bush. Um, So they had a seven-year clearing lease. They worked really hard to get that land uh, looking like nice beautiful green paddocks um, and then became very quickly successful dairy farmers so dairying in the Illawarra became quite a um, prestigious well-known area for dairy farming um, 
Kel, my husband, his relatives started the very first butter factory in New South Wales. So they've always been quite innovative in dairy production. Um, but they brought with them a really innate knowledge of farming a very certain way. And I think what they found was an Australian landscape that was very different from what they knew. And they did their best to adapt to that and, and bring their ideas and, and all of that over. And in the course of the 160 years, we've seen very dramatic changes, not just on our farm, but in Australian landscape in general. Um, and we are seeing more really big events, droughts, bushfires and all those sorts of things. So when we moved back on farm full time in 2008, we came back with the knowledge that we would need to start doing things a little bit differently. That's not an easy decision to make. And when you're talking about generational farming and, and the knowledge that they have, trying to introduce new ideas or concepts isn't always well received. And um, we, we had to make decisions. Originally, they were financial decisions. We couldn't afford to keep farming the way we were farming. Uh, input feeding, fertilising, chemicals, they're all really expensive. And I think the crunch came it was, we, we used to buy grain quarterly and we were looking at our diminishing grain stores, feeding these cows, you know, 8, 10, 12 litres of grain a day. And the next grain bill was going to cost me $20,000 and I just couldn't justify spending that money at that time on that thing. So we had to look at what else we could do, what could we do to make it profitable, but also how could I lower my overheads if I'm not feeding grain, I need better pasture. How do I do that? If I'm not using chemicals, I'm dealing with weeds and problems. How do I deal with that? So all of these changes, which were kind of forced changes originally, led us down the track of looking at ways we could make that land not just more profitable, but better. <laughs> so looking at ways we could put back the nutritional microbes into the soil, get that soil working really well, get that uh, pasture performing really well, incre increasing the productivity of our herd. But when you start making these changes, all of a sudden you go back and you question everything. You look at every single system on farm and figure out, is it efficient? Is it working for us? And if it's not, how do we change it? Because when you've done things a certain way for a really long time, any of those changes are hard. <laughs> That's an amazing summary of what you guys are doing. And this, I have, and I love having these conversations. We've had the little chat about this a number of times. And every single time we do, there's always something else that I pick up and grab. Yeah. And, and learn more and more. And just to put this into context, because with the Pines and, and with you and Carol, um, being on the farm, um, look, everyone talks about the last 12 months and, you know, we are literally, you know, we're 12 months, you know, when we wanted to do this festival. Before, I mean, before, let's say, COVID, even before that, the bushfires. Yeah. yeah. And before that, drought. <clears throat> yeah. Like, that is like one thing after the other. And I've always been blown away by... Uh, the resilience of farmers of to take that adversity and then turn it in to uh, uh, just to keep going like it's not even turning into opportunity but but I also 
Maybe tell us a bit about that. How, I mean, how did you go? You, went for, you, you talked about the grain yeah, and yep. drought and, and then and then bushfire and then, like, COVID. I mean, uh, this, this transition to, I suppose, this way of regenerative farming, I mean, how long ago did you start this? Yeah, so those original changes that we made when we first came back on farm, they were forced kind of financial changes. But from that, when we started looking at every system on farm and kind of trying to reimagine how that might look, it led us down the path of regenerative farming. And the more we read, and we're farmers, we, we spend a lot of time actually out on farm, but we're coming home and we're trying to read books and listen to podcasts and trying to find information, tap into networks of people who know more about it than we do. And we literally just had to make a start. And they were, they were very small starts, getting rid of the chemicals and trying to put on a microbial spray. And incredibly, even with those minimal changes, we were seeing positive results. And I think that when we saw those first few paddocks responding better than I had ever seen them, just by making those few small changes, it kind of gave us that fire, you know, like if that's what is possible, if that's the result we can get, doing these things what else can we achieve so it kind of lit the fire we started doing more we've been um, studying under people like Nicole Masters who's an incredible soil microbiologist um, Charliana and Hamish and Mackay who are biodynamic masters um, reading Charles Massey Call of the World Reblood tapping into the um, incredible indigenous knowledge that we have in Australia pulling all those resources because I I can't imagine how the farm is going to look if I don't change. So every time we come up with a problem or trying to put it into context of what we want to achieve on farm, and as soon as we start putting it into the context of is it going to be better long term if we do this, it makes sense that those changes start to occur. couple of questions. How big is the farm and how many head of cattle, cows, do you manage? Yeah. So it's 100 acres. It's quite a small land holding. We are right in Kayama. So we've got, um, basically, we've got the high school on one side and then we've got uh, developments happening around us. It was a much larger land holding. Um, I, I'd hate to think how much land once upon a time was owned by the family. Um, thousands of acres at one time. Um, but no, look, we've got 100 acres. Originally, when we came back on farm, we were only dairying 40 of that because of the type of cow we had. It's on hills. Cows that aren't made for walking up hills don't like doing it and they, they, we try and keep them as close to the dairy as possible. We now use every single acre. So we've kind of re-envisioned how we move those cows around. We milk 26, so we are a small milking herd, but I run a dry herd as well, which means there is another herd of um, steers, so the male calves that we rear up, um, we, don't, we don't get rid of anything on farm, they all have a purpose. The steers, the young, the young stock, the cows that are either pregnant or waiting to get pregnant, and one very happy bull. <laughs> One happy ball. Yeah, his name's Percy. Per- Percy. Percy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine Percy's name as a bull. I like that <laughs> name. I, um, and again, we were talking about there the just twenty six cows. Twenty six milking cows. Twenty six yeah. milking cows. Um, and 
I would love you just to talk. We had a little conversation before, which I found really interesting about just like when you talk about making small changes mm. with big impacts. Yeah. Maybe you're telling me a little bit about how you move yeah. the cattle around. And maybe if you could tell us a little bit about like that as an example of. Sure. So originally we had a series of laneways, the permanent fencing laneways where cows had to walk every day to get to the pastures they were going on. Those, pa- those paddocks that they were going into were quite big and the cows had access to kind of walk all over them, trample them, damage them, and then we would try and lock them up and, and recover them. Now, we got rid of all our internal fencing, so we have a series of portable electric fencing, and we moved that fencing twice a day, every day, for every cow on that farm. So it's a lot more intensive, but we make it work. And the benefit of that, though, is that when they go into pasture, they are not trampling it or compacting that soil. They're grazing a third, they're trampling a third, and they're leaving a third. So they go in, they hit that pasture quite quickly, then they get out. We don't let them go back over it and and cause any more damage. It allows that paddock longer time to recover. It gives it a chance to have ground cover, so leave matter that is still covering the soil, so that soil's not about to blow away, wash away, or degenerate. And then what it does, it allows those plants to put deeper roots down. So those plants are healthier, they recover quicker, and they photosynthesize better. So they actually become more nutritious. So we have better established pasture. We get a a larger herd going in, hitting it really quickly, and then moving on. So mimicking what would have happened um, in a, a grazing herd situation when there were no fences, they would have moved on, had their pick of pasture, and then moved away. So we're trying to give mimic what we used to see with that and it's called cell grazing or holistic cell grazing so we're trying to replicate and give those plants as much time as possible to recover from the impact plants like to be grazed they like to have that that impact they sometimes do better once they've had that impact so we're giving them the best conditions for them to continue to grow so you move the cattle, 26 cattle, twice a day. How many of you are there doing this? It's just, just me or Cal, one of us. It's a, it's a one-person job. Cows, they, they're like puppies, Dan. They just... <laughs> you, you go in the paddock and they, like they, puppies, they come over and they want to pat and they follow you around. And because you're usually moving them onto more fresh pasture, they're like, this is great, we'll go where the fence is going. So and once they've moved on, you just block off where they were. It's, it's, not, it's not that hard. It's, it's fun. I'm thinking of a Pied Piper kind of scenario. <laughs> I love that idea. And I, and it's so, I always find that so interesting when we talk about farming and how such small changes yeah. uh, make such a big impact. What other observations have you seen or yes. things that you've done that have created sort of a, a you know a, an impact on the farm? Sure. There was a really cool example last week and it was my favourite so far. We get lots of small wins. There's no big, you know, amazing moments where everything looks incredible, but there's lots of small wins where I feel like we're on the right track. And we recently had a really heavy rain system where we got 150 mil in, in like less than 12 hours. And before that, we'd had a fair amount. We, we were pretty wet. And on the second day of that rain system, we checked the creek and it was like, it was dribbling. And I was like, Yay! And to put it into context, normally, 
before we started doing our regenerative work and, and the, the improvements to the pastures, the first day of a massive system, we would, I wouldn't even have to check the creek, I could see that water running off my paddocks. I had hydrophobic soil that wouldn't, it was scared of water, it wouldn't hold any water. It was washing off all the nutrients, it was washing soil away, and I, I could watch it hammering down the hill before it got to the creek. So the fact that by implementing these changes, my soil is now retaining water, so not just am I increasing the microbial activity, but we're doing what's called key line contouring. So I'm using a, a, a yeoman's plough, which is a very basic plough system, where I'm following the natural contours of our land and creating pathways for that water to go and then creating space for that water to stay in the ground. So using systems like leaky weirs and dams, that water, instead of running off down the hill, is now trickling its way across the farm. That water is staying in the soil. And by the time a second day of a massive system and I'm getting a small amount of runoff, that's a huge win. My, my water is staying in my soil and I don't know how, I can't explain how important that is, um, but it was a massive one. Cal came inside and we were, we were cheering. We were like, where's the champagne? We, <laughs> this is really positive. So. I, 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 again, I think that's incredible and when it comes back to things like water and especially in a country like yeah. Australia, I mean, water con conservation and uh, how we manage water because obviously water green grass that means less import less yeah. in, um there's this flowing effect and i and to and this is why i love having this conversation with you marla because every single time i do i feel like i learn something and i take oh, there's so much more and so i have so many more questions but i want to bring it back to cheese yeah yeah so let's talk mm. about uh the cheeses that you make and how have i suppose the um, the impact on the final product that we've got, and we chatted to Nick before about the importance of a place in a, a moment in time. Yes. From these changes to what sort of what are you seeing in the, the resultant cheese? From yeah, all yeah. These so it's been really interesting. We we are quite new cheesemakers. We we've been long-time dairy farmers, short-time cheesemaker. So for us, it's been one. It's been a learning process. But now, what we keep coming back to is how do we let that soil quality, that pasture quality and that herd health shine through in that cheese. So really simplifying our cheese making process. The make on the day, we're trying to keep as simple as possible. And then the affinage for us, again, we're trying to, it has to be something that we really re reflects what we do. Um, so where we store and look after our cheese, it's the old grain silo. It's a silo that we can't, we don't put grain anymore. So it was sitting in the middle of my production space. I didn't know what to do with it. We've converted it using um, heat exchange in, in conversion to keep the humidity. And this beautiful old silo is now the home of all of our big wheels of cheese. And it's incredible to know that what's happening in that soil and, and what's happening in my herd is coming through and, and, and very much is reflecting in the seasonal variations as well. Um, when we're finished, pop on over and taste pearl. It's got a beautiful reflection of season. That cheese was made four months ago. We had an abundance of wildflower, clover, and some really interesting um, native species coming through. And that's what you're tasting in that cheese today. And I, it's so exciting for me that that's the expression of what's coming through in that cheese. And I love, um, and I love that idea that 
this whole change and having that translate into the final product where you can taste those subtle differences uh, and the product is, is amazing and I'm a massive fan um, of, of your cheeses, particularly like the though Actually, tell us about the names of the cheeses. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all named after our cows. We're pretty simple folk. But Pearl, um, we've got Dream and we have Marilla, which I actually don't have today. But they're all our favourite cows. They've all got hold of a very special place in our hearts. Um, and we decided just to keep it nice and simple and name the cheese after the cows. Um, on the subject of cows, we've, we've made a big shift away from the conventional dairy cows. We were Holstein breeders once upon a time. Um, and I'm really excited now that we have our second and third crosses starting to come into the herd to be milked. So predominantly Holsteins are the ones you see everywhere, the big black and white cows. They produce incredible milk for drinking and they have really amazing quantity. So we're talking 40 litres a day of really beautiful milk. Um, but for us, we don't need quite so much. And I really wanted to develop a herd that could make incredible proteins in their milk for cheese making. So we've crossbred with Normandy, Flecvia, some Scandinavian red, and we now have a Pinsgau bull, that's Percy. Um, and the added benefit of that is that they're really changing the complexities of the actual structure in the milk. So I'm getting far less milk, averaging 16 litres per day per cow, but my yield of cheese is higher. So my fat content, my proteins, and the actual curd that I'm getting from that literage of milk is higher. So it's incredible to see the difference and, and you know, you don't always have to get bigger. You don't always have to try and increase your, your inputs and increase your outputs. It can be simple as, as simple as just reimagining what your systems look like, making a few changes and then letting those changes kind of come through and be profitable. So um, there is so much more we can do and I get excited thinking about what that landscape looks like in another 20 years time. I really hope that I don't recognise it. <laughs> I hope that the ridgelines are all planted out with really established, beautiful trees and my paddocks aren't getting hit with wind and I'm not getting any soil erosion. I hope that I've managed to put my gully back into native plant and bush and that I have re-established rainforest species that were decimated when we cleared that land. I hope I have waterways that have incredible diversity, frogs and yabbies and all sorts of species that I don't see. I want to see it all come back to life and I can't wait to stand out in those paddocks and be absolutely deafened with birdsong because we are already getting an incredible amount of biodiversity of species back on farm and it blows me away that Kel sends me texts now. Most husbands send pictures of whatever. My husband sends me pictures of frogs. I haven't seen this frog in ages. And it's here in the paddock. And I'm like, yeah, that's really cool. And I send him pictures of fungi. I'm like, what's growing in the paddock? What is, what's on the underside of that wood? Why is it purple? That's so cool. So, you know, we get really excited that we are increasing biodiversity on farm. And in 20 years' time, that, that landscape, that 100 acres, is going to be an incredibly rich learning ground and I can't wait to encourage you all to come on a farm. The goal is to have an experience where I can do more educational stuff. I'd love to invite you up to do a salad door, to taste our cheese, to talk to us what we're doing and hopefully encourage another generation of, of young farmers to really fall in love with farming because it is incredibly rewarding to do. Uh, 
I don't know any other way of sort of finishing off there to saying the farmers <laughs> to fall in love with farming. Um, Marla, your story again, the passion and enthusiasm and just attention to detail is such, I always love talking to you about, about this. Thanks so much for joining us for this live edition of the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. If you'd like to hear more, we do hope you consider subscribing or even better, share it with your mates or via the socials. It all goes a long way to help us spreading the good word about Australian cheese. If you'd like to get in touch or have any feedback at all, please follow us at the socials at, at Mole Cheese or send us an email to hello at molecheesefestival.com. We've got so many more conversations to come. So until next time, cheers. Cheers.